Would you please take your Bible? Let's turn to the first book, the Gospels, Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And then I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And so if you want to find both of those places, we're going to start in Matthew, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiod, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matham. And Matham, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, if you'll turn with me to Galatians, I should say, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and I want to read the f- verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, what beautiful passage for the Sunday before Christmas. And while Christmas causes us to think of so many different things, certainly the birth of Christ, would you, by the help and the aid of your spirit, help us to see the beauty of what you were doing in sending your son, sending him forth, born of woman, born under the law. There's a so that to it that we need to see 
and spend a lifetime cherishing and enjoying for all of eternity. Holy Spirit, do something big and large and glorious in our hearts today as we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Steve and Peggy Mauser attend the first service at 9 a.m. And I was having a conversation with Steve just a few weeks ago and he was telling me that he and Peggy had had dinner with uh, some friends of theirs who live in Cleveland, Ohio. And it turns out that these folks who live in Cleveland are next-door neighbors to LeBron James. Now, how many of you know who LeBron James is? Just raise your hand. Okay, so most of you do. If you, if you don't, that's okay. Uh, he plays in the NBA, plays basketball in the NBA, and he is like the, the mega star, Okay. Many argue that he is the greatest basketball player who's ever played the game. Now, that's debatable, but he's big. And they are next-door neighbors. I'm not talking neighbors, you know, like we're neighbors, but we live 10 doors down, that kind of thing. No, next-door neighbors to LeBron James. And Steve was telling me about, you know, talking with him and everything. I got thinking about it later. I thought, man, I'm telling you what. If I am next-door neighbor to LeBron James, I'm telling everybody I'm letting everybody know. You know, I'm going to McDonald's. I'm saying, give me a Big Mac, a fried Coke. And by the way, LeBron James is my neighbor. <laughs> or, you know, you go to the DMV and they, they check in your address. Say, but Mr. Morris, is this the right address? Yes, it's 519 Borough Wood Circle. And I'm neighbors to LeBron James. Our sod intermingles. That's how close we are. <laughs> now, I'm, you may not be a fan of, of LeBron James. And I, I'm not saying I'm a huge fan, but... Look, all of us, I think, I think most of us, if not all of us, like to feel connected to somebody really important, right? I mean, I've got, I'm pretty sure that LeBron James would not be saying, Pastor Ben, he's my neighbor. <laughs> I doubt very seriously if he'd be saying that because he, he'd get no cred out of that. But if I could say I am neighbors with LeBron James, I get some cred out of that. I have some credibility, you know? Now, why am I telling you this? Well, there's a reason it's because I am so tempted. I am so tempted. I've been tempted for years to get on Ancestry.com. I want to know if I am related to somebody famous. I, I, I want to know, you know, if, what if? What, just think of what if. What if I was in Abraham Lincoln's family tree, you know? And if I was, if I was, I would tell you, of course I would. <laughs> but then I know what you would do. You'd be on Facebook. Our pastor, our pastor is in the family tree of Abraham Lincoln. I know you'd do it. I know you would because you'd have some cred then, right? But I have learned since that if, uh, if I did get on Ancestry.com, one in five searches turn out in negative results. In other words, if I was to do this, the chances are I would find out that I am related to somebody infamous rather than famous. I was reading about a guy the other day, Luke Spencer. He used one of the genealogical services, and he found out that he was related to a woman by the name of Mary Ann Gearing, a real lady who was a mass murderer in the year 1800. She killed at least a dozen people with cyanide. You say, that would be just my luck. You know, you, get a, you pay all the money to sign up to Ancestry, and you find out you're related to a mass murderer. You're not going to tell anybody that, are you? <laughs> we are looking at a genealogy today. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, I mean, just, just I can identify it this way. This is the part that you skip when you're reading Matthew, right? 
You, you say, I'm going to read the Gospel of Matthew, and you, you start going through, and this one begat this one, and you think, oh, I think I'll just move on to chapter 2. Okay. Uh, but look, there is something really, really wonderful in this genealogy. But first, before we talk about that, why in the world is this here? Why is it necessary? Why did God feel necessary to put this in the book of Matthew? What, what is so important about it? And I, I'm going to give you just a few brief answers before we go any further. And you'll see them on the overhead. The first one is this. Uh, God cares for history. The first reason that we have this genealogy is that God cares about history. Now, you may say, I'm not much about history. But look, we need to be because genealogies document actual history. In other words, what we just read really happened. It was real people. And it illustrates that God's word is, is historically rooted and therefore our faith is not in vain. Do, do you realize that there are some religions and some cults that, that, that really their, their history is like virtual nothing? You know, it has, it has no anchoring, no foundation. But Christianity has a solid foundation. These people were real. This history is real. And therefore, our faith in the Lord Jesus is not in vain. And so that's one of the reasons why God gives us this genealogy. But the second reason would be it shows God keeping his promises. Now, remember back in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to have this multiple, you're going to have a seed and then there's going to be more seed and there's going to be just, it's going to outnumber the stars of the heavens. And, 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 he, and, and, and there's, the, the Messiah is going to come from that line. And what we see here in this in, uh, in, in genealogy, Jesus belonged to the chosen people who descended from Abraham and to the house and family of King David. And therefore, he is the promised Messiah. When Matthew was writing this, it was important. The book of Matthew was pretty much identified to the Jews. And it was helping them to see that Jesus the Christ is indeed the promised Messiah. A third reason for the genealogy is it shows God displaying his grace. Now, I want to take just a few minutes here. Every name in the genealogy that we looked at, with the exception of Jesus, were all hardcore sinners, all of them, with the exception of Jesus. Why, why not Jesus? Jesus was fully God and fully man, okay? So he's a unique person like no other person who has ever lived or who ever will live. And so Jesus is the sinless son of God, but all of the rest of the people, men and women in this genealogy are hardcore sinners. But I want us to think about four of them just briefly. They're all women, and it's a shock that they are in this genealogy. And they are Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, which her name's not in here, but the wife of Uriah, it's Bathsheba, and then there's Ruth. Now, what's, what is so shocking about these names? One, in, 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 in genealogies, it was rare during these times that women, women just were not in genealogies. It was only men. But God sees fit to put women in the genealogy. Why these women? Because first, all of them are Gentiles. They're not Jews. And all of them except for Ruth, the other three, are guilty of sexual immorality. In other words, their names, their names would immediately elicit what they did. You know, 
Bathsheba was married to Uriah and she slept with David and they had a baby, you know, and, and, and immediately you say these names and, and flares start going off of like, what are these people doing in this genealogy? What one person said that these ladies are termites in the family tree. That's a pretty good way of putting it. So let me ask for just a moment. Just think with me. Why or how did these women get in the genealogy of Jesus? I mean, how did they slip in, you know? How did they get past the vetting process? I mean, this past summer, I was reading a book entitled First in Line. And it's a book about, primarily about vice presidents. You see, when a president, you know, decides he's gonna, a guy's going to run for president, starts thinking about a vice president, you know, who's going to run with me? Well, then they, they have a, a, a team to do the vetting, okay? Like, we got to find somebody that's not going to make us look bad. We don't want to find out something later down the road that they have done. And it's really interesting. Some, some, some people in history have been called up and say, you know, you know, we want to talk to you about becoming the vice president. And they just say, nope, thank you. <laughs> the reason is, is they've got, a, they've got a closet full of skeletons. Because these folks start looking into your financial records and all your social media and all your affiliations and all the improper relationships that a person has had. However, there are some who think they can beat the vetting process. <laughs> Let me tell you about a man. You can, you can get online later and, and watch the video. In 2015, a man named Jerry Bantz was a candidate for Canadian Parliament. And I think he thought that he could get past his past, that he could somehow slip in without public learning about his bad deeds. Because in 2012, three years earlier, he was a home contractor. And he gets a call to come and work on some plumbing for a lady. He does not know that he's on video. And after he gets finished with his job, you see on video, he reaches into the sink, picks up a coffee cup and urinates in it, dumps it in the sink, and then sets the cup back in the rack for the customer to drink from. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> and, 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 and see, I guess he thought he'd get past that without anybody recognizing, but he was on video. And he had to finally drop out his candidacy. And so what I want you to see here is this. In this genealogy, you should be able to trace the far-reaching effects of God's grace. Because there are people in this genealogy, again, imperfect people, and some way off the charts imperfect. Yet what we see in here already are the far-reaching effects of God's grace and welcoming outsiders into his family. There's one other reason that I want you to consider with me why this genealogy is here, and that is God values families. God not only cares about families, but he wants you in his family, all right? God not only cares about families, he wants you in families. In fact, I will go as far to say that in large part, Christmas is about God building a family. Have you thought about it that way? If you haven't, I, would, I want you to entertain that fact with me today. Christmas in large part. There's a lot of facets to Christmas that we think about. Uh, but I want you to think this morning with me that Christmas in large part is about God building a family. And the reason why I say that is because of the text that we read in Galatians chapter 4. And you'll see it on the overhead. Just a portion of it that we read. Notice this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, here's what I'd like to do for the remainder of my time. I want us to unpack this together and see the beauty of it, all right? First off, when the fullness of time had come, what does that mean? What does it mean for the fullness of time to come? It means simply this, at the right time. Not, not, not at the right time the way we would see it, but in the wisdom of God Almighty, at the right time, he would, what? Send forth his son. It, it, it could have been done 100 years earlier than this. It could have happened 500 years earlier than it did. But at the right time, in God's wisdom, God sent forth his son. Now, notice that phrase. God sent forth his son, born of woman. Now, what is that what does that ring to you? It should ring as Christmas language, right? That's Christmas language. That's the incarnation. God sending the eternal son of God, born of woman. He's going to, what we sang about, take on human flesh, fully God, fully man. No one ever, ever like him. God sent forth his son, born of woman. Now, when it says born of woman, why is that important? It, it tells us that he was a real human being. You know, we, we might be guilty sometimes of thinking about Jesus in, in ways that are not exactly biblical. But he was fully human. He was fully God, but he was at the same time fully human. Then it says he was born of woman, born under the law. Jesus was born as all human beings are, into a state of obligation to God's law. In other words, as Jesus lived on this earth, he was obligated to keep the law of God, the law of his father, which, by the way, he kept perfectly. He kept perfectly. Now, why is that important? Uh, J. Gresham Macon was a a well-known Christian figure in the early 20th century. And he, um, he was dying and his last telegraph that he sent out, this was in the days of the telegraph, he sent out to a close friend of his, Professor John Murray. And here's what he said. And I love, I love this. I was looking at it the other day and I thought, what, you know, I, I can't think of a better foundation to die on than what he says. Oh, how I thank God for the active obedience of Christ Without it, there is no hope. Now, you might say, why didn't he say, thank God for the cross? That would, that would have been fine. But he brings up something here that we seldom think about. We often think about the cross, about what Christ accomplished at the cross. And, 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 and we, sh- we certainly should sing about that and rejoice in that. But while he lived, before he died, he rendered absolute perfect obedience and we're told in the book of, Re- book of Romans chapter 5, and you can look this up later, that is really significant for our redemption. He did what we could not do. And in doing so, he was more than able next to redeem those who were under the law. He was obligated to keep the law, and he kept it perfect. We were obligated to keep the law, and we failed. You see? That's, that's why that is so important. His active obedience, his perfection. That's why John Makem would say, thank God for it. I'm getting ready to die. I put my hope in Christ. Thank God that he, he was obedient perfectly. 
that would make him able to redeem those of us who failed. And he did this by receiving the curse of the law. In fact, the scriptures say he became a curse. What does that mean? When we fail to keep the law, there's a curse that comes upon us. The curse of death. We're cursed. We failed. We we can't keep it. But he, he who was sinless, took the curse for us in our place. He is able, he is able to redeem those who were under the law so that. Now, I want you to stop here with me. And I just want you to get my breath here for a minute because I'm telling you what, those two words are like a bomb to me. So that. The fullness of time, the right time, perfect time. God sent forth his son. He sent him down to this broken, sin-cursed world. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died and became a curse in our place. So that. Now, what do those words say to you? They say to me that God's doing something here. In other words, this is not just random stuff all running. There's a flow to this. God has a plan. God is doing something. God is building a family. Because it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God, think about this. Think about it with me. God is creating a new family out of the myriad of families on this earth. God is forging a single family through the act of adoption. Think about it this way. God is looking down. God is drawing out of the orphanage of this world. People like me, like you, like you, like you, so that they will be part of his family. Christmas, in large part, is about God building a family. So I want you to think just a few things with me here. Just think this out, all right? First, when we think about salvation, we often think first about justification. Now, explain what we mean. Justification is, is a legal act of God declaring us not guilty. We come to Christ, we receive Christ, we believe in Christ. <clears throat> God declares us not guilty. Now, that is wonderful, especially if you understand how guilty you are, how condemned you are. It is glorious when you realize God in his grace has justified me. That's a wonderful thing. But it's one thing to be forgiven and pardoned, but adopted is an entirely different thing. Think about it this way. A criminal, a criminal may pay their debt to society. They go, they go to prison, 20 years. They get out, what happens? Society looks at them unfavorably. Society looks at them with suspicion and distrust. In other words, they've paid their debt. They're not guilty any longer. The slate's wiped clean, but they're not welcomed. Society looks at them suspiciously. Not so with God. With God, we are justified, forgiven, pardoned, slate wiped clean, and then... According to the Father's goodwill, he adopts us into the warmth and the security of his household. He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. But he doesn't just forgive us and leave us out there. No, he invites us in. He, he gives us the status of adopted children into his family. Friends, that's amazing. 
That's amazing. I mean, the, the biblical teaching of adoption is absolutely mind-blowing because God is extending to us all the benefits of his measureless love now and for all of eternity. It's amazing. But you might say, you might, you might say, but then isn't everyone already a child of God? Now, if you're thinking that, would you please listen very, very carefully? Or if you know someone, and surely you do, because secular society does believe that we are all. We're just, in other words, why should we be concerned about adoption? Why, why should we be concerned about receiving adoption as sons so that we can be adopted in the family of God? What's so exciting about that if you're already a child of God? So let's make some distinctions here, okay? We need to. First, we are by nature and creation all children of God. And the book of Acts says this, we are offspring of God. Okay, now don't, don't, don't leave me, okay? Think with me. We are all by nature and creation the offspring of God. And so in that regard, all humans fall under this category. However, the Bible teaches that we as the offspring of God, we have rebelled against our God and we are estranged children from our God. That's why the scriptures call us Children of disobedience, okay? There's a reason for that terminology. Children of disobedience. Why? Because we, we, we were the offspring of God, but we went our own way. And we rebelled against our creator. And therefore, we're estranged from God. And so, listen, what does God do about it? Not, not what you do about it, because I didn't do a thing about it. I didn't do a thing about it. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was at, 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 20, at 23 years old. I was not sitting there going, oh, how I want to be in your family, God. How can I fix this, God? (laughs) How can I fix this? Now, I wasn't doing any of that, but God was. In and through adoption, we are restored to a relationship with God which is different from that which humans have in general with God. I mean, you're going to meet people this week who are the offspring of God, but they're not part of the family of God in this sense as being adopted into the family of God. Why do we say that? John chapter 1, look at these verses with me. John chapter 1. But to all who did receive Jesus, have you received Jesus? I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. I'm not even asking you if you believe in Jesus. I'm asking you, have you received the Jesus of the Bible? The Jesus who is the perfect son of God. The Jesus who has risen from the dead. The Jesus who is coming again. As many as received him who believed in his name, what does he do? He gives the right to become children of God. It is a privilege to be a child of God. It is a privilege to be in the family of God. It is by grace that we get in. He gives the right, the privilege Galatians chapter 4, we just looked at this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friend, everyone is an offspring of God, but not everyone has received the adoption as sons. The only way you receive that is through Jesus. But let me clear up one little thing here before we turn toward home. Why sons and not sons and daughters? See, I know, I know that we, we live in a time where there's a great deal of talk about equality for men and for women. And you might 
hear this passage and say, see, there you go. There you go. That's why I don't like the Bible. It's, it's patriarchy. It's misogynistic ideas of here, here's, here's men up here and here's women down here. See right here. Become sons. What's, what's the matter with sons and daughters? Now, wait a minute. Wait just a minute here. Don't, don't let anybody blow smoke in your eyes. Some of my younger friends, some of my millennial friends, you're going to hear this. See, You're going to hear this as an, as an outright, outright frontal attack against God's word. But I want you to listen very carefully with me, okay? Why not sons and daughters? Because Paul knows how to use that language. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see this verse. Paul quotes this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Look, don't, don't you let anybody blow smoke in your eyes and say that, 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 that the God of the Bible is, is some kind of a monster, some kind of misogynistic monster. He's out to put women down and get, you know. No, don't let anybody tell you that nonsense. What, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. But, but Brother Van, it says in Galatians, sons. Now, why did Paul not say sons and daughters? The reason is this. In ancient cultures, it it was sons who were named the legal heirs. Look, don't blame God for everything in the world, okay? See, some people read the Bible, some who are skeptics and haters of the Bible, they'll they'll read, well, my goodness, there there was polygamy in the Bible. David married all these different women. Listen, God did not prescribe that. God never prescribed polygamy. Well, why is this in the Bible then? It's being described. It it, it was a part of culture at that time. It wasn't that God endorsed it and said, yeah, thumbs up on that. No, uh uh-uh, not at all. So when you read the Bible, you understand that there's what's being described as going on. But then there's also what is prescribed, what God tells us to do and how he tells us to live. And so in ancient cultures, sons were named as the legal heirs. And in turn, husbands and fathers were expected to provide for the women of their households. They didn't always do that, okay? But that was what was expected. Being a direct heir in this society would not have been possible for the Galatian women. In other words, the way society was, the way the laws were set up at that time, it was not possible for a woman to be an heir. And so Paul is just speaking to that time, okay? He's speaking to that time and season in life. Now listen very carefully what I'm going to say next. Paul didn't leave out daughters by accident. It wasn't like he went you know, wrote sons and thought later, oh, my, I meant to say sons and daughters. No. By referring to both male and female hearers in Galatia as sons instead of sons and daughters, he was communicating the status we share together in God's family. We are all heirs through Christ. Okay? That, that's the way it ends up. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Okay? And so he's, he's not trying to make a distinction or trying to make it equal here. Well, I got to say daughters too because it's, no, no. He's having to deal with the culture of his time and he's making it clear that we are all men and women. We are all heirs, joint heirs with Jesus 
all who have put their trust in him. Yeah. Christmas in large part is about God making a family. And so just one closing word to us as a church family. Um, God chooses who will be in his family, not us. God chooses who will be in his family, not me, not you. God chooses. I want to say that because we often can feel like that, you know, as we, as we, we can be in danger of what James talked about in the book of James of, you know, kind of looking at some people and saying, I like you. You're going to be easy to work with. You're going to be easy to deal with, but I don't think I want you okay, because you're going to be a problem. See? And so we all struggle with that, all right? So first, God chooses who will be in his family, not us. Our part is this. We proclaim the glories of the gospel, letting people know that there is a place in God's family for imperfect, spiritually sick people. Now, here's, the, here's some of the dangers we have to watch out for. First, some who are of the liberal progressive wing will say this. You're sick? Wonderful. Celebrate your sickness. In fact, you're not sick at all. You're just fine. In other words, you live the way you want to live. You do what you want to do. You say you're sick, but we say you're not so sick. Celebrate your sickness. Be what you are. Don't worry about what the Bible has to say. Now, how is that going to help anybody? Think about it. Is, is, that, is that speaking the truth to people? So there will be those in the liberal progressive wing that will say that to the imperfect and the spiritually sick. But then unfortunately, there are those in the conservative church who might say that might be us. <laughs> you know, we like to think, you know, there's liberal progressive people out there, you know, but we're more conservative. Well, here's the danger that we face. The conservative church often says, you're sick? Well, don't come in here. You'll infect us. That, that's the danger that we face. Again, we, look, we might look at them and think, you're going to be easy to deal with. You're not so sick looking. <laughs> but you, oh, I don't think so. So here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you to steer away from the liberal progressive view of those who are imperfect and spiritually sick and even sidestep and move away from the conservative way of looking at imperfect spiritually sick people and look to another way, one that sounds like this. You're sick? Come on in. We've been sick too. Let's help get you better. Doesn't that sound more like the heart of God? I mean, I'm telling you what. I was one of the imperfect ones, but he sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem me who was under the law, so that, so that I might receive adoption as a son. Can I, can I ask you to do this this week? Just consider this. You're going to be running into different ones, and you're going to be at people's homes, and you're going to be celebrating. And Let's do this. Let's go this week and help someone get better, Okay. Let's, let's do what the scriptures say. Let's imitate our father in heaven. We're part of his family. We start looking to our father and saying, it's my glorious father. He's perfect. I want to be like him. I want to be in every way. I want to do what he does. I want to, I want to, I want to respond to what he says. I want, I want to imitate my father in heaven. Then go, then go and help someone get better. Don't say, hey, can't work with you. Or, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> oh, hey, come on in. Come on in. We've been sick too. Let's get you better. And by the way, by the way, 
I may not have, and you may not have, LeBron James as your neighbor, but we have someone that we are connected to who is far more famous. And the scriptures say this, he is not ashamed 